صباح الخير جود مورنينج دي ليسنرز يو ليسنينج تو راديو 3 سي ار اون 855 اي Palestine Remembered is Australia's only English-language radio program that is totally dedicated to Palestine. We'd like to welcome those listening on 855 and those that will join us on podcast at 3cr.org.au. Thanks for joining us. Stay with us and enjoy the episode. Bringing you the news and views and the untold side of the Palestinian struggle for freedom from a Palestinian perspective. Good morning, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Palestine Remembered. Before we get into this week's show, which is going to be dedicated to the Nakba, the catastrophe, the loss of Palestine, I'd like to remind you all that we're on 3CR. We can only be on this show because of the fact that it's community sponsorship and community-led, and it's listeners like yourselves and your contributions to 3CR that enable 3CR and shows like Palestine Remembered to go to air. The Radiothon, our annual Radiothon, is on June the 18th. Rob and I will be live in the studio taking your calls, having a bit of Q&A feedback. So pencil in June 18th. The lines will be open. You'll be able to call in. I hope that you'll be able to donate to the show. But either way, you'll be able to call in. We can have a conversation live on air. So June the 18th at 9.30, that'll be Palestine Remembered's section for the radiothon in the meantime please if you are able call in go online donate or june 18th when you can speak to rob and i live would really appreciate your support as we've done over the past years we've our budget is two and a half thousand dollars we've exceeded that every year for the past sort of three or four so hopefully we can exceed that again this year so those listeners that donated last year thank you so very much in the past years and for our new listeners please dial in June 18th and speak to Rob and I would really appreciate your support. And June 18th is a perfect time to make a tax deductible donation. So you'll get a tax receipt that'll enable you to get uh, claiming your taxes on the 1st of July. Now tomorrow, May 15 is the anniversary of Nakba Day. So we are having, thanks to the crew and the team at Free Palestine Melbourne, we have a Nakba vigil tomorrow, 12 o'clock at the State Library. It's a couple of hours. Come along for as long as you can, an hour, half, just show some solidarity. We've got some speakers Look, it'll be a very somber event. We're commemorating the catastrophe, the loss of Palestine on the 15th of May. So tomorrow at 12 o'clock, we'd love to see you at the State Library. Come along and join us and, and show some solidarity for those Palestinians battling under the brutal occupation that is Zionist Israel. 12 o'clock tomorrow at the State Library. Hope to see you then. First, a poem, a First Nation perspective. We are not here to be considerate towards fragile whiteness. We are not here to choose our words wisely towards coloniser offspring who feel hurt by our rage. We are not here to censor our ancestral pain to be accepted in the white mainstream. We are here to honour the suffering and sacrifices of our ancestors. We are here to prevail the long overdue call for justice. We are here to collectively heal from ancestral pain and trauma and put an end to the ongoing exploitation of our bodies and souls once and for all. We are here to make a change. This will be our legacy to the future generation. Led by the blood of our ancestral dedication, resilience and love that fiercely pumps through our veins. These are the words all Indigenous people feel each day with their connection and their loss of their ancestral homes and their denial of their rights to self-determination. 
Palestine disappeared May 15, 1948, and it disappeared because of the last great settler colonial event in the world. We know settler colonialism as Palestinians. We know settler colonialism in the context of this country, so-called Australia. We know settler colonialism from our brothers and sisters in North America, in Canada, Turtle Islands, and in Otoroa, New Zealand. Settler colonialism is brutal. It's ugly. It's a pervasive force used to eradicate the indigenous and replace with an external. Settler colonialism is what Zionism is, which is racism. Settler colonialism, racism, created the modern state of Israel in 1948 when Palestine disappeared. And it did that through a series of events, not least of which was the cons conspiracy between the British and the Zionists in first declaring the Balfour Declaration and then working with the Arabs all the while the Arabs not knowing of the agreements, whether it be size Pico or whether it be the Balfour Declaration, with respect to Britain's ulterior motives with respect to Palestine and ultimately the creation of a Jewish homeland. No Palestinian denies Jewish connection to the land. What we don't accept is Jewish supremacism. The notion that to believe in a Jewish nation in a land of multiple cultures and religions and to be the supreme controller of that land at the expense of those other multiple cultures and religions, to be that person is to be a Jewish supremacist, necessarily a racist. In 1948, what started with a number of different pogroms, massacres, culminating in Der Yassin on April the 8th, when that village in West Jerusalem was surrounded and almost every living thing, animals, pregnant women, elderly children were massacred. Enough residents were left alive and they were given very specific instructions. Head north, head south, head east, and tell your brethren, tell them that we're on our way. These were the words of the Zionist, Jewish, terrorist forces of the Haganah, of the Irgun, of the Stern Gang. This fear, this lived experience these Palestinians took away from Deir Yassin and they went to those villages. The fear conveyed to those other Palestinians the brutality and inhumanity of these Zionist Jewish terrorist forces that were coming. Somewhere between 700 and 800,000 Palestinians fled either at the end of a bayonet, on foot. They fled fearing death. This was all part of the Zionist plan, of David Ben-Gurion's plan, of Plan Delet. Revisionist Israeli historians like Ilan Pape, Benny Morris have all gone through the archives and found just the detailed planning that went into 1948. The detailed planning which included understanding who in which village was a conspirator, who they could bribe, who they could cajole, but also who they couldn't bribe or cajole, who they would necessarily need to get rid of, assassinated those leaders that they would need to kill to create the necessary fear to see the mass evacuation of Palestine. Following this mass expulsion, up to 500 Palestinian villages were bulldozed, burned, buried. Many of those villages were then covered with non-native, non-indigenous trees 
As we know, most of the Zionists had come from Europe and they were endeavouring to turn Palestine into Switzerland. And so they brought with them seedlings and seeds of Nordic trees and trees that you might find in Austria or Germany. Well, as we've seen in the past number of years, a number of bushfires in 48 Palestine with respect to those non-Indigenous trees and the challenges they have in Palestinian climate, which are completely different to the Alps in Western Europe. Those villages were covered by the Jewish National Fund, the JNF, which despicably, despicably, the JNF has tax deductibility status in Australia. And that is a, a bone of contention. It's something we need to do a show on to talk about how the JNF has been able to maintain tax deductibility status in Australia, where Australian resident taxpayers can actually make a tax deductible donation to the Jewish National Fund, which then pays for trees to cover the ancestral bones of Palestinian villages to deny our connection to that land, to extinguish, to wipe out any Palestinianness of that dirt. What we know is they may cover our villages, but they will never, never extinguish our desire to return nor extinguish our connection to our ancestral homes. In 1948, these massacres, the ethnic cleansing of Palestine, as detailed in so many books, but I would commend to you Alain Pape's The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine as a must-read on this subject. Those Palestinians that fled, about 80% of the Palestinian and Arab inhabitants of what then became Israel, most of those Palestinians ended up being refugees. Many took citizenship in the West and outside of the colonations, nations, as we call them, of Lebanon, Syria, Jordan and Egypt. Iraq as well. Many of them fled. But today, almost half of all the Palestinians remain stateless refugees. Around 100,000 Palestinians remained in what then became Israel. To date, they've been treated as second, third, fourth, fifth class citizens, as we know, based on the apartheid reports that have come out in the past couple of years, whether it's been from Yesh Din, B'Tselem, Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, and even the UN now. They've all charge Israel with the crime of committing apartheid. Those Palestinians that remained behind are denied many of the rights that Jewish citizens have, and in fact any Jew has anywhere in the world, unlike the Palestinians that languish in refugee camps, in particular those Palestinians in Gaza who are trapped, hermetically sealed in a 365 square metre enclave, the world's largest open-air prison, 80% of whom are refugees, could walk home to their ancestral lands in less than a day's march. And as the famous, fantastic Palestinian demographer, geographer, intellect said, well over 90% of the Palestinians could return to their ancestral homes. Most of them are used as farmland, uncultivated or, or disused lands. They could go back and not displace a Jewish Israeli. Accommodation, of course, would have to be made for those other Palestinians whose homes are occupied today by Israelis. We should be very clear, the right of return is inalienable. No one would question or deny the Ukrainians the right to return to their home once the Russian occupation and invasion ends. Yet today, Palestinians are justifiably worried. There are moves afoot at the UN to defund, to destabilize, to get rid of UNRWA the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, which was established to look after Palestinians in 1949. 
It's done more to provide urgent aid and support to Palestinians than any other organisation. UNRWA has a humanitarian and development mandate to provide assistance and protection to Palestinian refugees pending a just and lasting solution to their plight. The UN General Assembly Resolution 302 read on December 8, 1949, Neither a lasting solution to the plight of the refugees nor even a political horizon has been achieved. Instead of using this realisation as a way to revisit the international community's failure to bring justice to the Palestinians and to hold Israel and its US benefactors accountable, it is UNRWA I'm, and by very extension the Palestinians, the refugees, that are being punished. Donald Trump decided to defund UNRWA. UNRWA receives 30% of its funding from the United States. This was a huge, huge problem for, for UNRWA and for the Palestinians that were looked after. The budget is some $1.6 billion. I mean, it provides everything from education, medical support for close to 6 million Palestinians in Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, Gaza, and within 48 and 67 Palestine. In 2018, Jared Kushner, Trump's son-in-law, went to a man, Jordan, where, according to reports, he tried to persuade the king of Jordan, King Abdullah, to remove the refugee status of some 2 million Palestinians currently living in the country, make them Jordanians. This failed. When Biden came to power, he agreed to restore UNRWA's funding, which was great. But a caveat was inserted. The caveat was called a framework for cooperation. What that was, was a Trojan horse inserted into UNRWA's mandate via the US at the proxy of Israel to ensure that they could control where the money was going to. So they could choose who and what and how UNRWA money was spent. By entering into this agreement with the US State Department, Badil, the Palestinian Resource Center for Palestinian Residency and Refugee Rights said, UNRWA has effectively transformed itself from a humanitarian agency that provides assistance and relief to Palestinian refugees to a security agency furthering the security and political agenda of the US and thus ultimately Israel. Sadly, Palestinian protested and changed the reality and now we're dealing with a much different UNRWA into its 74th year. Depressingly, the EU followed suit and the European Parliament advanced an amendment that would also condition EU support of UNRWA to adding those conditions. Let's not mince words, UNRWA is not an ideal organisation but it has done something that no other organization has done, which is to help Palestinians. It's incumbent upon Palestinians, their Arabs, and their allies to continue to fight for UNRWA's original mission. And they must urgently help us develop plans and platforms to protect those Palestinian refugees, and most importantly, to protect their right of return to their ancestral homes that they have never forgotten. We have to make it clear, if Palestinian refugees are removed from the list of political priorities concerning the future of a just peace in Palestine, justice and peace can never be attained. We're talking about a Nakba, the catastrophe, 1948. Don't forget to join us tomorrow at the State Library where we will be commemorating the 74th anniversary of the loss of Palestine. State Library at 12 o'clock. And now for a change of pace, Masar by Letrio Gibran. Enjoy. <music> Thank you.
amazing Le Trio Gibran, fantastic supporters of the Palestinians, a wonderful, wonderful band, father and two sons. A great joke that Yusuf and I have amongst ourselves is when Palestine is finally liberated, when Palestine's finally free, there won't ever be any time to work because we'll have so many public holidays that commemorate the massacres that Israel perpetuated on the Palestinians. During the past week, May 10th, we have to recall, was the one-year anniversary of the most recent Gaza massacre, where for 11 straight days in Gaza, Israel targeted everything. 113 people, of whom 110 were civilians, were killed inside their homes by Israeli forces without warning, mostly at night, with an estimated 130-odd missiles. 46 children in Gaza were killed inside their homes, 37 of the 38 total women killed in Gaza by Israeli forces over those 11 days were killed in the sanctity of their own homes, all without warning and at night. 1,313 houses were directly targeted and destroyed, another 6,500 damaged. Israel's levelling of four high-rise buildings destroyed 232 housing units in last year's assault. And this is compared with 182 in 2014, which lasted seven weeks. That gives you an idea of the ferocity. Almost 2,000 people were wounded, including 630 children. 41% of them were in their, in their home. 397 women, 51% of them in their home. 3,005 Palestinian civilians in Gaza have been killed by Israeli forces within the past four wars. This is on top of the massive devastation to civilian infrastructure in the world's largest open-air prison. It's a crime against humanity. The blockade, the siege must be lifted. One of the things we have to be careful of when we talk about Nakba is talking about it in the sense of it being a single once-off event. What Palestinians know is Nakba didn't just start and end in May of 1948, but the Nakba is an ongoing process. Most recently in this past week, the Israeli Supreme Court just ruled in favour of the Israeli military that the village of Maseferiyata, which is in the Hebron Hills, a cluster of villages, some thousand Palestinians, they call it Firing Zone 918, that the military order is legal and that those thousand Palestinians must be ethnically cleansed from that land. This is following 20 years of legal proceedings. The justices gave the green light for this to go ahead. It should be clear, this is a, a war crime. The forced Population transfer is a war crime. For 20 years, these Palestinians have been fighting this through the Israeli courts. They've suspended their lives. They've not built anything because, as we know, the Israelis will demolish any structures. They've struggled with their ba very basic of services, just waiting, hoping, beyond hope, that the apartheid system might show a human face to them. Whilst living there for hundreds of thousands of years provides no security in the face of Israeli apartheid, these Palestinians will not give up their fight. In a Machiavellian twist, nobody could even, you couldn't even write this sort of stuff in a movie script. One of the judges in the Supreme Court, he himself lives in a settlement. We don't like to say illegal settlements because they're all illegal. He wrote, the authority of the military commander to order the closure of the area is simple authority that is rooted in a duty to the welfare and safety of the population in the area the welfare and safety of the population in the area well their welfare would be best served by living freely in their ancestral homes i'd like to share with you some stories 
from Nakba survivors. You'll find a link to these in the podcast. From Nazareth, Amin Muhammad Ali is in a tiny store, little more than an alcove, and it's easily missed amid the bustle of the main thoroughfare of the market in Nazareth's old city. His shop is a time capsule, transporting visitors to a period before the arrival of the cheap kitchenware, women's fashion, and electronics stocked by neighboring traders. Hanging outside from the awning are traditional sheepskin rugs, battered copper cauldrons, and faded brass coffee pots. In rusting bowls are hundreds of old coins of a currency no longer recognized, the Palestinian lira. Muhammad Ali, better known as Abu Arab, cherishes these relics as keenly as he does his memories of a home and the way of lost he lost almost 70 years ago when he was 13. Israel does its best to silence us, banning talk about the Nakba from school so the young generation will not know what happened. I'm sure one day I will return to Safariyeh. He says of a Palestinian village only two kilometers outside of Nazareth that Israel destroyed during the Nakba. He pauses, then chuckles, as he injects a note of realism. If not me, then my son, and if not my son, then my grandson. Unlike the majority of refugees from 1948, 82-year-old Arab lives near his village in the neighborhood of Nazareth, whose residents are all refugees from Safariyeh, or their descendants. Today he is an Israeli citizen, but has no more rights to return to his village than his relatives in the camps of Lebanon. An Israeli legal parlance, he says, drawing heavily on one of his cigarettes, he is classified as a present absentee, president in Israel, but absent from his property. Over the village lands, Israel has built an exclusively Jewish community and given it the similar name, Hebraized as Zitzora, where the houses once stood as a pine forest planted by the Jewish National Fund. How does he feel about Israel? We're not against Jews. We're just against the ideology of Zionism. Jewish Israelis can be partners if they can overcome their brainwashing and are ready to accept a resolution that is fair to everyone. Abu Arab's infectious optimism is eclipsed only when he recalls the events of July of 1948 as Safari was attacked. His face grows somber, his eyes distant. They bombed us from the air just as we were breaking the fast for Ramadan. They knew we would all be in our homes. His parents fled with the children, three brothers, including the late poet Taha Muhammad Ali and a 12-year-old sister into the dense undergrowth nearby. In the morning, as Israeli troops occupied the village, they were forced northwards towards Lebanon. Shortly after they arrived in a refugee camp there, his sister died from heat exhaustion. My mother would sit by her grave every day, lost in grief. Finally, his father decided that they must make the dangerous journey back. It was very frightening. We never knew if we were about to stumble into the Israeli army. At the journey's end, they found the village gone. The area had been fenced off and declared a closed military zone, and anyone entering risked being shot. We had nothing. Everything had been taken away from us, he says, his large hands that have animated his memories, finally falling silently by his sides. The family hid in a friend's house in Nazareth, and slowly the three brothers started to rebuild their lives, selling cakes from a street trolley. When Abu Arab had saved enough, he bought this current shop. There has been a gentle, melancholy tone to these recollections, echoing the poetry of his celebrated brother Taha. But as his focus returns to the present, his voice grows stillier. All the refugees have a right to return, and no one can strip us of this right. The events of 1948 must not be erased from the collective memory, he adds. In that spirit, he helped to found the main body representing the internal refugees. 
ADRID, the Association for the Rights of the Internally Displaced, which for the past 30 years has organised an annual Nakba march on Israeli Independence Day. Abu Arab is also active in the Sifariya Cultural Association. Over the years has taken items from his shop to stock a museum, commemorating the extinguishing of life in the hundreds of villages like Sifariya, wiped off the map in 1948. The early Zionists justified the creation of a Jewish state in Palestine, saying that this was a land without people. The museum is a proof that Palestinians and Palestine did exist, that we have a culture and a heritage that cannot be erased. Thanks for listening to Palestine Remembered. Make sure you pencil in June 18 for our Radiothon, where you could call in and speak to Rob and I live on the air. Be sure to come along tomorrow, State Library at 12 o'clock, an event by Free Palestine Melbourne, a Nakba vigil from 12 to 2 o'clock at the State Library in Melbourne. Thanks for listening. Be sure to share the podcast with your friends. And remember, there's never been a better time for a Free Palestine.